The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming back. It's always encouraging to a preacher when people show up the second time. So uh, thank you for, for doing that. It means a, a lot to me. Uh, find your notes uh, on hope and help for families. And <clears throat> as we get started, uh, let me just mention that um, in my mind, as I prepared these notes, I had five groups of people in mind. First, and maybe most obvious, I was uh, anticipating speaking to parents. And I hope you find a lot of uh, direction and help in this session. I also want to talk to grandparents. Um, my wife and I were both uh, significantly influenced by one of our grandparents. And we know from experience that grandparents can have a profound influence on the life and the direction, the aspirations of grandchildren. And Cindy and I are now at that happy phase of life where we're grandparents and um, we're trying to do everything we can to redeem these opportunities. My third group that I'm interested in uh, hopefully helping would be children or youth workers because uh, God doesn't design you to be the one who saves the kids. He wants you to come alongside the parents and help get them pointed in a good direction. And I hope what we talk about will strengthen you in that important ministry of working with youth. And the fourth group is individuals that hope to be parents. I've been struck in my counseling ministry by the young people that I've talked to who have told me that when I ask what do you hope to be doing five or 10 years from now, they'll talk about where they want to live, what kind of car they want to be driving, what their hobbies will be, how much money they want to be making, but how few of them will talk about wanting to be married and even fewer yet how many will talk about wanting to be a parent. And when I quiz them on that, one of the things that I've heard is uh, young people saying, I grew up in a home that was terrible, I did not have a good childhood, and I don't think I could do any better, and I don't want any child to go through what I went through, so I'm not going to have children. And if any of you come from that kind of a perspective, my goal is that through this teaching, you'll find yourself thinking, well, maybe by God's grace, I could be a good parent, because the scriptures are clear on the key elements of doing that, and I hope to give you hope. And then the last one is, I'm delighted to see some children here in the room and uh, kids. I hope that what we talk about will lead to maybe some of what mom and dad do and what they say and what they expect from you to make a little more sense and maybe to make it a little more easy to follow, <laughs> I hope. All right, so find your notes, um, hope and help for families. Notice uh, the opening uh, statement. The greatest joys and heartaches you will experience in life will involve your family. For many of you, it will, be, it will especially involve your children or grandchildren. God's Word provides wonderfully clear directions on parent-child relationships. Embracing these truths will contribute to harmony and joy in your family. And in my opinion, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 is the single most helpful verse in the New Testament on the subject of parenting. And I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to that passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And if you've not already done so, I'd encourage you to do what I have done, and that is get that verse underlined. And I'd later encourage you to memorize the verse and allow that verse to guide you in how you think about parenting. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 has five key phrases that God wants you to consider, and he wants it to guide your thinking about parenting. The first phrase is, notice the goal of parenting. It's to bring them up. <clears throat> this is from the Greek word ektrephity. <clears throat> and ektrephity has, has a very nuanced or multiple uh, meanings, nuanced meanings. Basically, it means to nourish up to maturity, to train up. So when the scripture says, uh, bring them up, it means train them up, nourish them up. Um, I would draw the distinction, a child being brought up is very different than a child growing up. I remember many, many years ago when I was a child talking to my grandfather who had a profound influence on my life and uh, he was asking some questions about what was going on with some of my friends and my classmates and I mentioned one of my friends that had gotten into to trouble with the, the law and was in some difficulty at school as well. And I remember my granddad, it, it didn't, I didn't catch the significance of it at the time, but he just basically said, well, I know that family, that boy growed up, he wasn't brought up. You know, if you give a child food, clothing, water, shelter, and time, they'll grow up. But there's a difference between a child just getting food, clothing, water, shelter, and time and growing up and a child being brought up. They have to be nourished up to maturity. The reason for that is because children by themselves do not grow up to be what God wants them to be. Uh, Proverbs 22:15 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 29:15 says, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So the goal of parenting then is this. The goal of parenting is to lead our children to love Christ, to obey his word, and to function as independent adults who think and act biblically. That is to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now get your blanks uh, filled in and then if I could have your eyes for a bit. I wanna do a continuum to illustrate this. I'm gonna start here, I'm gonna finish over there. Let's pretend that this is at the point when a child has been born, you're at the hospital, you're holding that precious new life in your hands. What I want you to think about for a moment is, what do you have when you've got that child cradled in your arms? Well, depending on your circumstances, you might say, hope realized, a wonderful new addition to our family, uh, lots of bills. Uh, I mean, you could have different responses. What I want you to think about is four things when you're holding that precious new child. And it is a precious life. First of all, that child is a sinner by nature. Scripture teaches that clearly. Romans 3, Romans 5, so forth. Second, it won't take very long until that child starts showing you they're a sinner by choice. Third characteristic is that child is totally self-centered. All right? And the fourth characteristic is the child is totally dependent upon others for being fed, being burped, for being changed, being turned over, clothed, transported. I mean, you've got to do everything for them, except for their own breathing and pumping their own blood, 
I mean, they're dependent on everybody else, all right? Now watch this. You have this infant, center by nature, center by choice, totally self-centered, totally dependent upon other people. The goal of parenting is to take that individual, and in the early years, you view your home as a place of evangelism where you're going to point the child toward Christ, model biblical Christianity in such a way that it makes Christianity attractive for them to consider. By God's grace, they'll be born again. They'll start growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord until we get down to the point where they're at between the ages of 18 and 22. That's what it takes in our culture. Somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22, that child has developed a, a love for God, a commitment to his word, so that while they're a sinner by nature, they've been born again now. And they're choosing to live righteously rather than choosing to sin. And they're no longer totally self-focused because if you love God, the second great commandment is what? Love others. Now they're concerned about ministering to others. And if they're following God's commandment, they're going to be able to leave the home and become an independent, self-sustaining adult who can not just care for their own needs but then minister to others. And in our culture, that typically takes about 18 to 22 years. That's about when uh, most, uh, most children will leave. So the goal of parenting is to bring them up, that is, to get the child ready to leave home. In fact, when uh, this concept um, became, when, when I learned this, and then Cindy and I talked about it, this became a significant influence in our life and in our decision making with our children along the way because we would found ourselves being a goal-oriented parent the tendency of parenting particularly in the rush of life and with multiple children things happening the tendency is to be moment oriented but biblical parenting god wants us mentally our stance should be we are goal-oriented yeah we got to deal with stuff at a point in time but mentally, we're thinking about this. We want to think about what's happening in life and how can we use what's happening in this phase of the child's life, this age, what's happening in our family and all that. How can we be using this in effect to help them become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, help them to keep growing to maturity in Christ? The goal is to lead our children to love Christ, to obey his word, and to function as independent adults who think and act biblically. That is to become... Uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just would say in that context, a word to parents. Most non-believers are first attracted to a Christian, then to Christ. And I just would exhort the parents to consider, is my brand of Christianity attractive? You know, one of the concerns of many people in uh, Bible-believing churches these days are the number of children that seem to step away from the faith after they leave home, go away to college, or after they get married. And I think there can be several reasons to explain that. But one of the concerns that many parents have is my children aren't interested in spiritual things. And it's not totally the parent's fault. But one thing that wise parents are considering is is our brand of Christianity. And what I mean by that is not just what you believe doctrinally, but the way you live out your faith. Is your brand of Christianity attractive? 
Would it invite a non-believer to consider seriously the claims of Christ? Having said that, I'd add a word to the teenagers or the young adults that are here, and I would say to you young people, do not let your parents' failures dissuade you from considering honestly the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your parents may have failed you. Every parent's gonna fail at multiple times throughout the, the, the rearing years, but the Lord Jesus Christ has never failed you. And um, I would urge you to seriously consider him. The goal of parenting is trepidity, bring them up. Now, in light of that, the challenge becomes, okay, I understand the goal of parenting. How do we do that? Well, thankfully, God has not left us to our imagination. The scripture is clear. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The first key strategy I want to talk to you about is this one, in the discipline of the Lord. Now, this is the Greek word paideia. And paideia refers to the upbringing, the training, the instruction of a child primarily by act but primarily by discipline, primarily by correction. And part of what I'd like you to take home in your memory today is that when the Bible says, okay, bring them up, how do I do it? Well, there's two strategies. The first one is training by act, paideia. Now, paideia, um, one of the men who trained me in biblical counseling, when he would teach on this, he used to say, paideia is teaching with some kick in it. It involves providing direction for a child and penalties for violating the instructions. It involves providing direction for a child and penalties for violating the instructions. So let me try to give a couple of illustrations. I have two children, the oldest is Jim, and I remember back when Jimmy, back when he was born, we were so excited about being parents and we were celebrating all his steps of growth and everything and it was wonderful for us when uh, he started crawling, and then he got pretty quick, got some ability and everything, and we're telling all of our friends, Jimmy's crawling, look at my child, look how wonderfully gifted he is, look at him crawl like that. And uh, I remember one of the first challenges we faced after he started crawling and getting around the house, there was a rectangle on the wall that caught his attention. We typically call it an outlet. And I still remember one day, he's on the floor, and he starts heading toward the outlet, and I said to him, Jimmy, no. He paused, looked back at me, looked back at the outlet, and he heads toward the outlet. I said again, Jimmy, no, with more authority and firmness. He slowed down just a bit, then he goes toward the outlet, and he gets up to it, and his hand is just going up to reach it, and I'm behind him, and when he reaches up, I reach up and I slap his hand and I say, Jimmy, no. And I pick him up with some authority and take him and reposition him. That is paideia, teaching by act. You do certain things, there's consequences, all right? So a child gets a little bit older and let's say a child's, uh, let's say a child's in the third or fourth grade and they're in the school, they're taking their lunch to school, and one day the child gets up late like they're supposed to, and they forget their lunch. Mom has already driven the lunch to school a couple times here in, in the last semester. 
But we've been talking about this, honey, you've got to get up on time. You know what the routine's supposed to be. I put your lunch right there at the edge of the table. It's your job to pick it up. So now the call comes, mom, I forgot my lunch. Well, it'll be here when you get home. That is paideia. Later when a child is a teenager and they don't come when they're home when they're supposed to, and there are consequences, you can't drive the car for the next week. Maybe all kinds of objections, but what if? Well, that was the rule. That's paideia. Here's why. Look in your notes. The goals are character development and equipping for life in a world full of direction givers, in a world full of expectations, and in a world full of standards. The goal of paideia, the goal of providing direction for a child and penalties for violating the instruction, the goals are character development and equipping for life in a world full of direction, full of expectations, and full of standards. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one of the, um, the, one of the common misconceptions of, of teenagers that I've encountered in the counseling room is this. It seems like the teenagers, you know, they get 14, 15, 16, somewhere in there, a little older, they can't wait to graduate from high school because then they're going to get a job and move away and they're going to be, what's the next word? Free. You know? I, when I speak about that, my mind goes back to one of my most memorable counseling cases. Um, I started a new case and I'd been told that the family was coming because they had a boy that was about 16, 17 that was really creating havoc in the home. And uh, so they came in and when I went down to the waiting room to get them, uh, the young the boy sitting between the parents and it was quite obvious just by his appearance and his demeanor that he did not want to be there he had a baseball hat on and he had the hat pulled down so far you couldn't barely see his nose and uh, so he comes into the room and sits there between them slumped over and as I'm getting counseling started I'm starting to gather information I keep trying to engage with him and so forth and the parents fill me in about their family and their circumstances and then they start talking about some of the family dynamics and some of the discord and family caused by him. And I noticed as, he, as they would tell me stuff, particularly as they referred to him, I kept saying to him, and for a name I'll call him Jack. I kept saying, Jack, is what they're saying, is, is that what happened? Do you want to add anything about that? And uh, I kept trying to get him engaged. And uh, as we got closer and closer to some of the more recent incidents, including him being uh, suspended from school, the family being ordered to get counseling and so forth, and just all the recent upheavals and everything. I noticed that while I was talking to him, he kept putting his head down and taking his thumb and the bill of the cap kept getting pushed up, 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 up till finally I could see his nose and finally I could see his eyes and everything. And as we got closer to talking about the recent incident, you could just see him squirming in the seat. It's just like the, the fire's burning and uh, all of a sudden he just erupts in the session. And he says, he just, it was Thumas in the session. 
and he says, well, I'm 16 and a half and I've already checked with Billy's dad who's an attorney and when I'm 18 I can move out of the house and I'm going to move to Denver and Sam's uncle's got a job for me out there and he said I'll get to work as much time as I want, earn as much money as I want and I'm going to buy me a car and I'm going to drive wherever I go and I'll come in whenever I want to and I'll eat whenever I want to and I'll have whoever friends I want. You guys aren't going to run my life anymore and he just spewed and uh when he got done with his little speech, uh, there's this unsettled quiet in the counseling room for a moment, and God had to have helped me because the first words out of my mouth were, Jack, if I could fix it, I'd have you start doing that very thing two weeks from now. He looked at me kind of surprised. In fact, his parents looked at me kind of surprised too. And uh, I said, you know, I know what it's like to get your first car. I still remember my first car. That was a big deal for me, and it is for most guys. Get your first car. And I said, I've been to Denver a few times. It's a great place to be. And it's nice. You got the promise of a job, get, you know, hours, because the more hours you work, typically the more money you earn. And uh, I can understand you wanting to, to get out there. But I said, I think, I predict that when you do everything you just said, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. Here's why. When you get out there and Sam's uncle's got a job for you, guess what? He's going to tell you what time to show up. He's going to tell you what time you can have a break. He's going to tell you what time you'll have lunch. And he'll tell you how long lunch break is. He'll probably tell you how you're going to dress. And he's going to tell you how much he's going to pay you. He's not going to ask. He's going to tell you. And then when you get that first paycheck, you've been keeping track of the, the hours and you know how much he said he's going to pay you and you've been doing the math and you're thinking how many hours you got to work and how much overtime, getting time and a half and how much that's going to be. So you're looking forward to that first paycheck. But when you get that first paycheck and you uh, cut that thing open and look at it, you're going to be in for a big surprise. Because while you're thinking about getting started in life, Uncle Sam's thinking about you retiring. And without even asking you, they're going to take 7.85% of your income right off the top. And there's going to be state tax, maybe local tax and everything. And when you get that car, they're going to tell you if there's sales tax. They're going to tell you which side of the road to drive on. They're going to tell you how fast to drive. And they'll tell you how much you're going to pay if you don't drive as fast as they tell you to. And I said to him, put simply, when you do everything that you've just described, that you think is going to make you happy, um, you're going to look back at this season, living with your dad and mom and their expectations, and you're going to look back and say, in reality, it was pretty tame. Because the older you get, there's not fewer people telling you what to do. <laughs> there's more people telling you what to do. In fact, I'll tell you how bad it is. You can be a godly Christian who loves the Lord and who's wanting to be a faithful parent or a grandparent and on a beautiful Montana Sunday afternoon, you'll still go to the church at 3.30 because that's when they told you to show, show up. And a little bit ago, your pastor said, well, this is the time we're going to eat today. Think about that. The older you get, there's not fewer people telling you what to do. There's more people telling you what to do. And a child who does not learn to live within boundaries, with instructions, within guidelines that other people are putting on them, even if they don't like them, a child who does not learn to live happily within boundaries that other people put on them is not prepared for life. 
That's why. What does it take to get a child ready for life? Part of it is paideia. Boundaries, instructions, expectation, teaching with some kick in it. A while back, I had the privilege of uh, teaching on parenting uh, at my uh, church in Indianapolis, the church where we were members. And uh, I used the same illustration. And right after I got done, some guy comes right up, um, talked to me right afterwards. And he says, Randy, I really related to that story you told about that teenager blowing up about his parents. And he said, I was even more stupid than that teenager. And I said, really? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I grew up, you know, a little town 15 miles out of, outside of where the church was. And he said, I had good parents and I had a good home. But he says, I was just a flat out rebellious teenager. And he said, I couldn't wait to get away from my parents. And he said, uh, the, the, guess what I did, he said, the day after I graduated. I said, I don't know. He said, I joined the military. I said, really? He said, I couldn't wait to get away from home. And I said, well, what branch did you join? He said, the Marines. <laughs> he said, see, I told you I was more stupid than that teenager. And uh, what he learned was things were pretty tame back there with dad and mom. Well, let's move on. The goal of parenting is to bring them up, atrophy. How do we do that? Paideia, structured control, teaching with some kick in it. But that's not all. The Bible says, fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let's talk about that. In the instruction of the Lord. This refers to the training and the instruction of a child primarily by word. Paideia was training primarily by act. This is training primarily by word. This is the Greek word nuthesia. And uh, this is the word that for many, many years, like 30 years, 40, 30, 40 years, was used to describe biblical counseling. And biblical counseling used to be called nuthetic counseling. And I used to work for an organization called the National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. And it comes from this word or the verb form. And it, it has three elements to this kind of instruction. First, you discern thinking and behavior that God wants to change. Then using God's word to change the thinking and behavior. And you do this for the child's benefit and for the glory of God. So it's not just that we provide teaching by act, but it, we're providing teaching by word. And it means we discern thinking behavior that the child, whatever stage they are, what's, where, does they, where do they need instruction on how to think and how to act God's ways. And then we talk to the child about it. And our motivation is doing it is for the child's benefit, but also for the glory of God. So <clears throat> the goals of Nuthesia are character development and equipping the child to think and act biblically on his own, that is to develop spiritual convictions, to help a child to develop spiritual convictions. Now, <clears throat> the older a child gets, the less the parents can control where the child goes, who he's with, and also who is influencing the child. So the older a child gets, the more important it is that the child has learned to have biblical priorities and biblical commitments, or what we would call convictions, a biblical conviction. So 
Uh, number three there in your outline says, 10 scriptural convictions that children need to be taught. Now, I want to read these to you. And then after I read them, I'm going to ask from, for some verbal response from you. So, but here's the setup. Let's pretend that you're down here at the, this end of the spectrum of the continuum on the child-rearing uh, scale. And you're standing on your front porch or out in the front yard and you're waving at your child as they leave. And in, and in effect, this is a major leaving of the home nest. They may be going off to college, they may be going off to the military, they may be moving to Denver because an uncle's got a job for them or something, but in effect, they're leaving, all right? And what I want you to think about is, if as you're waving goodbye, what would be in your heart, what would be your attitude if you were, you were recently convinced that your child had these 10 convictions. And in just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to respond to that. So here they are. 10 scriptural convictions that children need to be taught. The Bible is the inspired word of God and the final authority for my life. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and to build my goals around his priorities. My body is the living temple of God and must not be defiled by the lust of the flesh. My church must teach the foundational truths of scripture and reinforce my basic convictions. My children and grandchildren belong to God, and it is my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, and basic convictions. My actions, my activities, must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and my marriage will be a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner. My money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principles. And my words must be in harmony with scripture, especially when reproving or restoring a Christian brother. And my affections must be set on things above, not on things on the earth. All right, so parents, you're saying goodbye to your child and you're convinced that these 10 are in place. These are personal convictions of that child. What would be your attitude? What would be your demeanor? What would be inside of you as you're saying goodbye? Tell me. Say it. Can we talk up, folks? It's okay. I'm asking. Go get them. Go, go get them. Joy over here. Confidence. Thankfulness. Expectations. Yeah. Maybe expectations. And wouldn't most of us say, honey, you're so far ahead of where I was <laughs> at that point? Yeah. Now, what I want to say to those of you that are parents, and especially to the grandparents, is there's only 10. <laughs> there's only 10. I mean, you can teach these. I mean, the key references are there. Let me give you a couple of ideas. You might uh, go home and say, you know, I'm gonna pick up on that outline. And we're coming toward the end of July, so in August, I'm gonna start focusing on number one. The Bible is the inspired word of God and the final authority for my life. And maybe as a family, we'll memorize 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, or at least part of it. And then we're gonna just kinda of make that our focus. We're gonna look for opportunities to talk about the scriptures in August and being the inspired word of God, but also the final authority for our life. 
I suggest if you do that, God will give you probably some opportunities to show the kids, this is not just talking, this is where we do what the Bible says even when it's hard. It's the final authority. And then September, go to point B. I mean, just think about, let's just say you have a 12-year-old at your house. I mean, you realize if, you, if you're a 12-year-old, got a 12-year-old, you're two-thirds done. I mean, the clock's ticking. I mean, you better get with it. Most kids leave home between 18 and 22. But even if you have a 12-year-old and you just started doing this now, think about the wonderful heritage that a child would have of parents who took them through this 10-point outline multiple times between the ages of 12 and 18 or 19 when they left to, to go to school or the military or whatever, get married, whatever. Um, now, some of you think, ah, I couldn't do it. I mean, I'd start repeating myself after a couple weeks and I, kids would get bored with my repetition. Okay, then why don't you say in August, we're gonna do August 1 to 15, we're doing point A. August 16 to end the month, we're doing point B. We'll take two weeks on each one and we'll just keep cycling through them and working on some of the scripture maybe to memorize and so forth. The point is by doing that, you'll be reinforcing it and as the children grow in their understanding, they'll gain deeper insight into this. The solution to having children that in not only say they're Christians and who come to church willingly, but who children who are gonna leave our home nest and continue on for Christ. They're not gonna be a puzzlement to their parents later and say, we brought them up, they seem to love the church, they seem to love the Lord, they're baptized members of the church. What happened? Well, oftentimes what happened is they conformed, but they did not embrace. They had understanding, but they didn't have convictions. And I'm urging you, part of the strategy to accomplish the bringing them up goal is that parents teach them biblical convictions. Let me show you a book that I'm a big fan of. This is called Sticky Situations. The subtitle is 365 Devotions for Kids and Their Parents. This is really ideal for, I would say, uh, children maybe sixth or seventh grade and younger. And uh, you open it up, every day's about the same. There'll be a paragraph at the top that outlines a sticky situation that a child might encounter with their friends or things, just they're well-written what-if situations. Then underneath that, there will be two or three questions to help guide the discussion and getting the kids thinking about this what-if situation. And then uh, at the bottom, there'll be a list of scripture references that might guide you on how to discuss these and how to apply them with your children. And uh, I've sold dozens and dozens of copies of this book. It's just wonderful. Uh, if it had been in existence when my wife and I were raising our children, we'd known about it, we would use it. Um, I remember one family that I counseled, um, I recommended this book to them. Was, I was working with them on parent-child issues, and they got this book. And uh, I, they finished, I finished the, graduate, finished the counseling, they graduated. Later, I saw them at a, at a conference, and we got reacquainted, and the, and the wife said, hey, uh, I gotta tell you something about, remember that book, Sticky Situations, you told us to get? I said, oh yeah. She said, well, we started using that, and said it really became a favorite with our, our kids. 
And she said, one of our family struggles is that my husband's family lives in Atlanta, or a little bit south of Atlanta. It's like an eight or nine hour drive. And with our kids in the car, it's just, you know, 45 minutes into the drive, they're picking at each other and fighting at each other. And we, it's just, the trip is not pleasant. And uh, so we've tried driving through the night while they're sleeping. And the problem is we get sleepy. And she said, uh, we were getting ready to go down for Thanksgiving. And, and uh, one of the kids said, Mom, are we going to do sticky situations when we're with Grandma and Grandpa? And she said, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll do sticky situations. So they packed the, the, she's, the wife tells me, I packed the book with my stuff up front. And she says, you know, about an hour into the trip, the kids start pulling at each other and everything. And, and we try to quiet them down. And about an hour and a half later, my husband says, do you have that sticky situations where you can get hold of it? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you do a sticky situations with the kids? So she, the mom turns and said, kids, we're going to do a sticky situation. And they, she said, it was just wonderful. They all just kind of quieted down. They engaged. We had this. And she said, I strung out those questions as long as I could, just trying to wring all the good out of those questions and everything. And she said, I'm getting ready. To, we finished one, and I'm getting ready to close it up. And the kids, when the kid says, Mom, can we do another one? And she said, well, okay, we'll do another one. So they read another one, and they talked it through and everything. And uh, she said, we ended up doing three or four of those. She said, the kids quieted down. So by the time we'd done the third or fourth one, she said, they're just kind of eat. They're cool, calm, and collected. And they just grabbed their blankets and took a nap. And she says, I'll never forget this. My husband turned to me and said, on any future trips, don't you ever forget sticky situations. <laughs> So it's a great resource. I encourage you to look at it. All right, let's move on. The most important or the single most helpful verse in the New Testament on the subject of parenting is what verse? Yeah, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So let's talk about this phrase, the one most responsible, which is fathers. The scripture teaches that children are primarily dad's responsibility. Children are primarily dad's responsibility. The headship of the husband is a key Bible doctrine. For example, in Ephesians 5.23, the scripture says, The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Further, did you realize that God holds fathers primarily responsible. God holds fathers primarily responsible. And that's illustrated, for example, in the story of with Eli. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, the scripture says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now Eli was an Old Testament minister. He'd be kind of the equivalent of what we'd think of maybe today as a pastor. He was a guy who kind of made his living ministering to people on the spiritual issues of life. And in light of that, just think about the sadness of that statement. The sons of Eli were worthless men. And then almost like an explanatory phrase, they did not know the Lord. I mean, how pathetic to be ministering to others in your own family, not uh, know key spiritual truths. And then moving on, in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, it says this. The Lord said to Samuel, now Samuel was an intern under Eli. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. And you know the rest of the story where Eli and both of his sons uh, were killed on, or died on the same day. The point is fa God holds fathers primarily responsible. They're not the only one responsible, but they're held primarily responsible. Years ago, um, Cindy and I were members of a church in the early days of our marriage, that a church that had an annual family month where there would be teaching on husband-wife relationship and parent-child relationships particularly. And one of the men who spoke on family issues, parenting issues, used an illustration that really clicked with me and turned out to be very helpful to me in my own understanding of, of parenting. And I heard this before I became a father. And that was, he said, men in our home, as fathers, we should view ourselves as the CEO of our family and then view others as your assistants. That other assistants would be mothers, the mother, grandparents, teachers, pastors, and so forth. So the application of that was that I would view myself as the president and CEO of Patent Inc. And at Patent Inc, what we're trying to produce the phrase Cindy and I used back then, we were, by God's grace, we were praying that God would help us to turn out children that were champions for Christ. That was our goal. And um, maybe today I'd word it that God would help us to turn out children that are faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is we were headed at patent ink. We wanted to turn out children that were Christ followers. And the, the man who taught pointed out that in our culture, even back then, I think it's more true now, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, you need help. And, and if I'm the CEO of a company, I mean, you can't do everything. I mean, you need help. What you really need to start with is a good executive VP. And fortunately for me, I discovered after we had children that my wife was a fabulous mother. And um, in fact, I would say, I mean, she's a fabulous mother. And both of our children turned out to love Christ. They're now walking faith with him. I have a son that's a pastor and who's raising their children and discipline and instruction of the Lord. My daughter's doing the same thing. And I would just, I would just testify that from a purely human standpoint, the, the good things that have turned out with my children are due more to my wife's influence than to my direct influence. Which just goes to show what a great decision I made when I hired her as my executive VP. <laughs> Right? <laughs> but the point is you can't do it yourself. You need help. But we needed more than a president and CEO. We need other people. And Cindy and I had both been influenced by our grandparents, but her parents lived uh, across the country in California. They're over 2,000 miles away. My parents are seven hours away. We need closer help than that. So we looked at people in our congregation that had children older than, than ours, people who seemed to be doing well with their families, and we invited them to our home for a meal where we interviewed not just the parents, we interviewed the kids. And uh, we wanted, we invited those parents. We want you to help us. 
And I said, we're asking you to speak into our lives if you see us getting off or emphasizing something or being extreme where we shouldn't be. And we're inviting you to speak to our children, to lovingly point them toward Christ and toward a life of biblical obedience. And um, we, we tr the goal was we're trying to build our team. And I would urge every one of you to do that. Fathers, you're the ones who are primarily responsible for that. You're the president. You're the CEO. Now, a primary principle of fathering is to be there physically, mentally, and emotionally. And in my own experience, I have found there to be a challenge in each of these areas. In my counseling ministry, I see this repeatedly, that where fathers tend to fall down is they're not there physically. And in our culture, we're, we're reaping the results of absentee fathers not just in the home, but in some places where there is a, a husband and wife together, the father's still gone an, an exceptional amount, an unusual amount, an unwise amount. But also, there's the tendency for fathers to be gone not just physically, but mentally. And I just would say to the dads, it's not enough that just your bod's on the property. I mean, your head needs to be engaged. You need to be in the game. And I've learned when I'm counseling a father, and he said, yeah, I was there. And I said, but were, were you with the kids? Oh, yeah, I was with the kids. And, then, and if, he, if he's got kids, they say three, five, and seven, I ask, okay, if you're with the kids, were you on the floor? Because when you've got kids three, five, and seven, a lot of parenting takes place on the floor, okay? And then the next question is, and did you have your cell phone with you? Because so many times people say, yeah, I was with them, but in reality, they're not there mentally. They're on, on the property, but they're not engaged. And then they're not there emotionally. This was an area where I had to grow personally. Um, you know, we're all influenced in a way by the kind of parenting we, we experienced. And I've already told you, I had a fabulous childhood growing up in southeastern Ohio. My parents were both Christians, took us to a Bible-believing church, and They've been very encouraging um, all the time they were living in my um, efforts to lead spiritual organizations, to lead my family. And my parents did lots of things right. But, you know, they're not perfect. And one of the things that I remember so distinctly is when we would go to visit my parents as a married couple with our young children, and uh, Usually, my mom, we'd have a seven-hour drive to get there. My mom, when we're un getting out of the car, my mom would have the door of the house open, and she'd be welcoming us. And we're walking up the, the sidewalk, and she'd be saying, oh, I've been praying for you. It's so good to see you. I've been so excited to have you come. And we'd get in and set down our suitcases or set down the kids, and uh, I'd go over to mom, my mom and greet her and hug her and she would put her arms around me, kiss me on the cheek, tell me how much she loves me, how much she's missed me, I'm so glad you've come. And after she says some things like that, she starts into the good news. I've baked sticky rolls for tomorrow morning for breakfast. I got cherry pie for tomorrow for lunch and supper. And I've got, you know, she's making all my favorite meals and things. And then she just hang on and just hug me, just expressing love in such a wonderful, warm way. And, <clears throat> Uh, I would leave my mom and to go greet my dad, and my dad would stick out his hand like this. And um, 
I'm not real proud about this, but that really bothered me after a while. And one time, after I'd gone through the whole routine with mom, I go to greet dad, he sticks out his hand, and I just stopped and said, dad, I'm not a visitor at church. I'm your son. My name's Randy. And then I went over and hugged him. Well, I tell you that story because one of the areas where I struggled and where I had to grow was being involved with my children, not just physically and mentally, but being involved with my children emotionally. And part of the things that has really helped me grow as a man was having a child, having a baby, holding that precious little life in your hands. I mean, it's so easy to love on a little infant and hug it and kiss it and tell how much you love the, the child. And I learned to do that. Being a parent helped me to grow in this area. Another thing that helped me to grow was my wife talking with me one day and saying to me, Randy, you can be fully masculine and have emotions that go beyond anger. And for me, part of what helped me to grow in those areas was having those precious children and learning to say I love you. And I learned to do that right up through the teenage years when the college, uh, <clears throat> through the college years. And I remember, still remember the first time Becky brought Charles, her boyfriend, now her husband. She brought him home from college, you know, to meet the parents and everything. And our custom is, I mean, we became kind of what I'd call a kissy base, huggy, huggy bear type family. And uh, so Becky comes in and we're hugging on her, loving on her, and then there's Charles, and I just went over and grabbed him and gave him a hug. I mean, he's like, you know, what is going on here? Because he, but later I find out he'd basically grown up with a dad whose response to him was basically like my dad was to me, and so he, but I'm happy to report that Charles has become accustomed to us loving on him, expressing our love. So dad's primary principle of fathering is to be there physically. Be there mentally, and then be there emotionally. Dads, you're really important. Let me just show you something that illustrates that. There are 24 million children in the United States today who live in a fatherless home. 40% of students in grades 1 to 12 come from homes with no biological father in them. 71% of teenage pregnant mothers have no father in the home. 70% of high school dropouts have no fathers present. And a child is four times more likely to live in poverty if there's no dad in the home. Now, I've been focusing on fathers because that's what Ephesians chapter 6, 4 does. But let me add just a word to you moms. Mothers are to be involved. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 says this, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Note this next statement in your notes. While fathers have the greatest responsibility for the children, mothers frequently have the greatest influence. And that should be a word of encouragement to those of you maybe that are single moms or or moms whether in a marriage but where the father's not engaged or maybe is not a Christ follower. Um, inevitably, mothers have the greatest influence. 
though fathers are in the position of greatest responsibility. Well, let's move on to the final principle that's talked about in the scriptures, and that is the tendency to avoid. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now notice, this does not mean that you never upset, you never oppose anger or displease a child. I mean, if that's what it means, <laughs> we're, we're out of business. What it does mean is that parents should avoid inciting a wrathful kind of living. This warning, don't provoke your children to anger. This warning is not about an incident of anger, but about a lifestyle of anger. It is impossible to raise a child without there being incidents of anger. But what we're talking about is not just an incident. We're talking about lifestyle. But the, the way of putting it would be like this. We're trying to avoid raising a child like the person spoken of in Proverbs over and over. For example, in Proverbs 19, verse 19, it speaks about a man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you only have to do it again. Uh, you know, don't raise a child who's known as a child of great anger. Or Proverbs 22, 24 says, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. The scripture is saying, don't raise a child who's known as a hot-tempered child or heart, heart a hot-tempered person or an individual who's given to anger. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that's broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Don't raise a child like that. The goal is we do not raise a child whose default response to not getting their way or things not going the way they want them to is anger. Now, in light of that, I remind you that the Bible speaks primarily of two kinds of anger. In Ephesians 4.31, the scripture says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Number two and number three in the list. The first one is let all wrath. That's the Greek word thumos, and it refers to an explosive outburst of rage. God has designed our bodies in such a way that when we get angry, energy is generated. And, and with the energy being generated, one sinful way of handling it is the energy goes outward and attacks people or things. You know, we, we can swear at people, we can hit walls, we can kick the dog, you know, slam the, the door or something. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, but the energy's going out and we're attacking people or thing, things. Ephesians 4.21 also talks about anger, and it's the Greek word orge, and that's where the energy generated by the anger is turned in on oneself. Now, parents, socially, thumos, wrath, is less acceptable than orge. What I've observed in counseling and then just in my travels is most Christian parents know that if a four-year-old is told to do something, they don't want to do it, and they throw themselves on the floor and throw a temper tantrum, which is thumos, uh, most Christian parents know that is wrong. They may not do much about it, but they know it's wrong, okay? On the, same hand, on the other hand, I've seen over and over again Christian parents who think, okay, the child's not throwing a temper tantrum, but they're slamming the door when they go into the room. When I talk to them, they don't answer. They pretend they don't hear. 
their subpar performance in school, they're not completing their jobs completely, all those can be manifestations of orge. It's more, orge is more socially acceptable, but parents listen, it's still sin. And it's to be addressed. It's, it's to be addressed. The Bible speaks primarily of two kinds of anger, both of which are wrong. And our goal is we are not going to raise a child who's going to leave our home nest and whose primary way of handling disappointment in life would be sinful anger. Now, let me uh, just wrap up by showing you a couple of diagrams that I have found helpful to use in the counseling room when I get to teach on this. And uh, you can see that the goal of parenting is to bring the child up, get them ready for life, atrophy. Well, the question is, how do you do that? Well, it involves two things. One is the discipline of the Lord. And I want you to notice that the discipline of the Lord is at an all-time high in the earlier years. I mean, you can teach a, a, a two-year-old a lot about uh, following instructions, doing what they're told to do, obeying. And the early years are the primary time to teach a child to live happily within boundaries or instructions that somebody else is putting on them. But that can continue, but it ought to be declining. So what does it take to get a child ready for life? Well, it involves paideia, the discipline of the Lord, but it also involves nuthesia, the instruction of the Lord. Now notice, the instruction of the Lord starts when a child is young. I mean, a two-year-old can be taught, you know, a lot of things. I mean, children are very bright, and with some coaching and so forth, they can learn to memorize verses in these early years and so forth, but it ought to be increasing, and ideally, these, these uh, the adolescent years and the teenage years are times of just really developing the teaching and understanding the personal convictions of the scripture. Notice it's not either or, it's both and. And the goal is to equip the child for life. Let me give you one other way of looking at this diagram. The goal is the same, bring the child up. But I want you to notice the contrast here. First, there's a decreasing parental responsibility. So I'd put it to you this way. Parents, if you're, if you're the parent of a four-year-old and you've been invited, you're at a guest to somebody's home for a meal and your four-year-old's running around and knocks over a lamp and breaks it, you are responsible, all right? But just add 10. If you've got a 14-year-old and you're at somebody's house and your 14-year-old is acting irresponsible with something and knocks over the table, well, it's the child's responsibility too. You're, you're partially responsible. So the point is, there's decreasing parental responsibility as the child gets older, but there also is increasing child responsibility the older they get. And if we're gonna raise children who are gonna be ready to leave the home nest somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22, we have to be shifting responsibility and holding them responsible to carry a, a greater and greater load of responsibility in life. Then finally, let me just finish by showing you some recommended resources if you want to get some things to read that will really help you as parents. Uh, the book on the left is called The Faithful Parent by Stuart Scott and Martha Peace. These are some of the most highly published uh, ACBC counselors, greatly respected Christian leaders, excellent book. The book in the middle is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. And uh, he and his wife have written a couple other books on parenting, but this is one that's a favorite among Christian parents. 
And then for some of you maybe that have had children that have been a source of disappointment and frustration, the book on the right is called When Good Kids Make Bad Choices. And uh, this would be particularly helpful to those of you that are struggling maybe with kids in the teenage years or th those who've left home and turn out to be prodigals, that can be very, very helpful for you. So think about those. Okay, now it's time for questions and maybe some answers or clarifications. Who would be first? And if you'd just speak and raise your hand, that's what I'd like you to do, then speak in a loud, clear voice, and I'll try to repeat your comment, and I'll try to answer it if I can. Yeah, and um, if I had more time, I mean, I'd be glad to teach on that. But no, I don't think the rod is an appropriate form of discipline. The Proverbs, I showed you a verse that says it's the rod and reproof that give wisdom. So it's not either or, it's both and. Um, what I have discovered in my counseling ministry and then even working with our own kids is what I see particularly in, in my counseling ministry is I have some parents who, who brag about spanking their kids. And I remember one couple particularly, they, they said, yeah, we whoop them when they need it. And the way they said it was troublesome to me. And I asked, well, in a normal week, how often would one, one of your children be spanked? And, and they said, probably every day. And my instruction to them was, stop. Do not spank your children anymore for the next couple of weeks while I'm helping you. Because it's obvious, if you're having to spank a child every day, the way you're doing it is not working. And um, what I would teach parents to do is that when a child, dis you ought to reserve spanking, I think, for direct defiances of authority. And uh, for example, when a youngster is told to do something and they say no, it's one of the first words that they learn, then I think parents ought to deal with that strongly. It may not necessarily, depending on the age of the child, necessarily be a spanking. But when a child says no, you ought to think, World War III was just declared, and I'm going to win. And the child should learn early on. There are consequences when somebody in proper authority tells you to do something and you say no, especially dad and mom. Uh, later uh, on, if you're working with a child in a particular area and they're not responding, not listening, uh, spanking might be used. What I would encourage you to do is to think about the packaging around the spanking and the way uh, we learned to do it that seemed to work well with us is first of all we used a neutral object i would strongly exhort you do not use your hand for multiple reasons i can explain if you want further explanation but do not use your hand and um, what we found very helpful is uh, we would go to sears in their paint department and you can probably go to lowe's or home depot now but go to the paint department and they usually give away, used to, paint stir sticks that are about this long, about that wide, they're plastic, they got holes in them, they're perforated, and we would use a neutral object like that. One of the benefits of those paint stir sticks is they fit very nicely in the glove compartment of a car. And wise parents raising youngsters are always armed. 
You don't always have to use it, but sometimes you just need to show I'm ready if necessary. So um, what we found helpful to do is like, let's just say for an illustration, my son Jim had disobeyed uh, in a blatant way, rebellious way. And I would say, Jim, go to your room. And um, I would go to the closet where we kept the, the paddle. I'd think a little bit and maybe talk to Cindy. And then I'd go in, I'd sit beside him, say, sit beside me. And then I'd ask, what did daddy tell you to do? He has to tell me. What did you do? What does the Bible call it when daddy tells you to do something and you don't do it? Disobedience, sin. What does the Bible say daddy needs to do when you repeatedly keep disobeying? You need to, to spank. That's right, bend over the bed. And then I would apply enough swats with enough force that a clear message goes from my son's behind to his brain, which says, it wasn't worth it. Don't do it again. And then um, typically he'd be crying. I'd say, lay on the bed. I'll be back in a little bit. I'd go put the, the paddle, I'd, I'd go out, shut the door with authority, put the paddle away, stand outside the door until the crying subsided. Don't wait too long, because sometimes I'll go to sleep because sometimes crying can be aerobic activity. And um, so when the, the crying has subsided, I'd go in, sit beside him, and say, sit beside me again, and then I'd start over. What'd daddy tell you to do out there? He'd have to tell me, what did you do? Disobeyed. What's the Bible call that when you do that? What would daddy have done if you had obeyed? Nothing. That's right. I would have been pleased, I would have been happy with you, this wouldn't have happened. So what does the Bible say a follower of Jesus Christ is supposed to do when they sin? Ask forgiveness. I mean, you teach them the words, you teach them the answers. And so I say, well, do you want to confess your sin to God? Yes. And we taught our children to say, dear Jesus, please forgive me for my disobedience or my rebellion. I mean, we'd teach them the words to use. And then I would say, um, Jim, the good news is for those who are followers of Christ, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And uh, I said, now, is there anybody else you need to confess that to? And we taught our children to say, appropriate people. Okay? Who would appropriate people be on this one? You. Okay? Anything you want to say to me? Daddy, please forgive me for name the sin. I'd say, okay, I forgive you. I'm glad you asked. Thank you for doing that. I said, uh, is there anything else you want to say to me right now? No. I said, oh, there's one thing, though, I want to say to you. Go pick up the toys and put them away like I told you. That's a package. All right? That's a whole lot more than just a spanking. And where many parents, I think, fail is they don't have enough packaging. Personally, the way I'm wired... If my parents had done what I just modeled for you, I'd rather take three or four more swats and answer all those questions. But that's part of it. It's a package of discipline. And uh, you shouldn't have to do it very often. But when you need to do it, it ought to be a production. And the goal is that we don't do this very often, but when we do it, it's done in such a way that clear messages are sent and hearts are turned toward obedience.
Other questions? Good suggestion. Thank you for that. All right, any other questions? Yes. You just talked through your package and you mentioned not more than or once a day was not right. So how do you apply that to like your two year old who reaches that first page, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you for that. Well, I think a couple of things to consider. You know, each child is an individual and we saw it in our home with just two children, a son and a daughter. I mean, things that, that worked in disciplining Jim at three didn't necessarily work with Becky at three. I mean, they're different personalities, so you need to adjust it. And I think the, the, the key concept is the parent has to win as the authority when there's disobedience. And that's why I talked about with Jim earlier, you know, I would smack his hand in an appropriate way, but the point is there was consequences. And then I said, I picked him up with authority. I mean, by that, I mean, I'm, there's enough, it, it's a different squeeze than when I want to pick him up to play with him or pick him up to hold him. I mean, I picked him up in a way that got his attention and then moved him earlier. And, you know, children have to be trained. It's interesting the ectrephity is bringing them up it's in a verb form that refers to continual action. I mean, you just got to keep working for it. I mean, when a, when a child comes into a home, basically you've signed up for an 18 to 22 year job. I mean, it's just, it's ongoing, okay? And that's why kids don't learn the first time, just like we don't learn the first time in many cases. So you keep working with it, trying to find, uh, I would encourage you to try to find the least I want to say this. I mean, you want to you want to use discipline that is a that is age appropriate and crime appropriate. All right, for the child, and um, it's the parent's consistency that probably is a major factor in it. So, did that answer the question adequately? You want to rephrase it, and I'll take another swipe at it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and think what you said, like you've been on a trip, everybody's out of the routine. I mean, just, uh, yeah, I, in our home, we would, we would tolerate some stuff right after that that is not normal. I mean, we'd say, look, we gotta get things squared away again and get us squared away, and then we'll kind of get back in the routine. So, I mean, I think that's appropriate grace, appropriate love, it's, I think it's understanding that we gotta grow in these things. So. 
I mean, and my concern with the counselee I talked about is if they're, if they're spanking each of their kids every day, it's not working. I mean, I'm not speaking against spank, I'm just speaking against spanking the way they were doing it. And my fear was, if you're spanking the kids that often, they probably got some bruises, and if the right people see the bruises, you're gonna be reported to the Child Protection Services. And uh, that was, all went into my thinking with advice with this family. Yes. Yeah. Importance of tone. And give me some idea how old the child it would be that you're thinking of. Uh, eight and 11. Yeah. Well, I, I think especially with an 11-year-old, they should be able to understand tone. Probably an eight-year-old can too. I've not, it's been a while since I've worked with eight-year-olds, so I, I gotta be a little careful here, but they probably could understand that. And it may be just that you and your husband modeling it for them. So, okay, we're gonna say some things to each other. Which way do you, which one do you think is the proper way for me to talk to your, to daddy? And then you can model the tone and then say, okay, now when I talk to you about your tone, it's sounding like that way that you don't want me or I shouldn't talk to your daddy. I mean, help them see that or even talk to, to them and help them see it. It's become a, it, it may be a genuine blind spot. It may not be rebellion, it may be a blind spot. Another option, and I don't know if you could pull this off, is if you could record it. If it ever happens at a time where you can get the recording and say, okay, I got the evidence now. Honey, sit down here, I want you to listen to this. Uh, that might be helpful. But I, I think it's just part of child training. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know you, of course, but if, if you have uh, daughters it wouldn't surprise me that if they're 11, they're entering into that period of time when there's typically a lot of drama among girls in the adolescent years. At least we found that. I mean, the junior high years were, ay, ay, ay. And uh, so you may discover that she's going to come home crying because a friend said something to her that hurt her, and you're going to be able to use that as a teachable moment. Was it what she said, or was it how she said it? And that could be a great teachable moment. And then, of course, comfort her about that. But just say, hey. And I tell you, go to it's Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 10, 19, that says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. And how about draw the, the distinction between the cheerleaders at, at the basketball game, the volleyball matches and everything. The, you know, in basketball, in Indiana, we're a basketball state. I mean, we talk about the, the home, when they're playing at home, the, the crowds, the, 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 the sixth team, sixth member of the team when they're out there because the cheering. So it's a great teachable moment on tone. Good question, thank you. All right, somebody else? We got maybe a couple more minutes. Yeah, yeah the, the, ask, the question was, would I speak to the appropriateness of warning or uh, 
warning a child or say threatening discipline and so forth. I think that's, I think that's very appropriate. Give a child a, a heads up. Okay, this is a behavior. This is not going to be acceptable. You need to change. And like if it was like the other question, if they spoke to you in a, in a disrespectful manner, just you may say, honey, that was not acceptable. I want you to say it again with a different tone. Or um, I told you to make your bed. I just looked at it. That is not acceptable. Go do it again or there's going to be other consequences and get it right the next time. And you know, I think that's, a pro that's training, okay? So I think there ought to be a reasonable, reasonable. We do, I don't think any of us would want to work for somebody where if you mess up, they drop the hammer on you. We don't want to work where somebody said, hey, you didn't get that one right. I mean, you need to do a little better on this next one, okay? So it comes back to the scripture, do unto others what you want done unto you. I mean, how do you want to be treated when you mess up? Because none of us are perfect. And I think apply that as appropriate to the children. All right, sir, one more question, yes. Again, and I don't know your circumstances, so I'm going to have to talk very generally, and um, I'd encourage you to follow up with, with Joe on, on that. Yeah, a lot of children that have just, um, that we may have opportunity to minister to, either as foster parents or sometimes, you know, a cousin comes to live with us because his family is a mess and they need help for a while. Um, I just would encourage you to provide um, stability what, what, what gives, what gives um, a sense of security to all of us is uh, boundaries that don't move. I'd illustrate it this way. If I were to go over and lean against that wall and it moved, all of you are gonna start looking like this. And if I walked over here and leaned on that wall and it moved, you're all heading for the exit. I mean, but you lean on those, nothing moves. Okay, we feel secure here. I think for many children, they've never lived with understanding what the boundaries are and they don't move. I mean, they're, they're in place. That's one reason why one of the, the techniques that can be used in parenting is we, use, we, we develop what we call code of conduct and we try to identify two or three areas where a child needs to grow and change, but we, talk about, okay, if the child does this, what's the reward for doing that? And if they don't do it, what's the discipline? And then we work on that usually for a quarter or so, and then maybe we modify it. But most children, if, if there's a sense that it, things are predictable to them, I'll use that word, that brings security. I mean, y'all, it's predictable in here. These walls aren't gonna move. So there's a sense of calmness that comes because of that. Okay, Joe, I think we're right on schedule. I'm going to stop. Thank you, folks. You've listened well. Thank you for coming. It's been a joy to, to teach you today. Thank you.